This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello, and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you DB's advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John. Yes. What did the patient say when the doctor said that his brain had lost all memory of 1980s music? What? Oh, no. What's the cure? <laughs> First off, I would like to state for the record <laughs> that The Cure are still a band. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm all, a right, little bit, all right, point taken. I'm a little bit offended as somebody who loved The Cure in 1991 that they would be associated only with the 80s. The Cure have been a going concern, Hank, since 1976. They're a year older than I am. Uh, so that's a great point. That's a good point. You've poked a good old plot hole in my dad joke. Uh, Hank, I have the most wonderful good news of all time. Oh, okay. All right, Hank, I'm just going to read you a headline from the Dallas Morning News. Texas grandma kills 12-foot gator, comma, says she's finally avenged her miniature horse. <laughs> I mean... But Hank, it is the rare story where the story is even better than the headline. The woman's name is Judy Cochran. She is the mayor of a town called Livingston, Texas, and she killed a 12-foot, 580-pound alligator with a single shot that was in a pond and that Mm -hmm. she blamed for the murder of her beloved uh, miniature horse. What, so so she's she she blamed it is like how did her horse die is, are are we not sure did it die of being like afraid of an alligator oh no it died of being eaten by an alligator but I okay. I don't know for sure that it was the same alligator it might have been a different gator okay so I have has has Judy cut because she seems pretty you know 
legit. Did yeah. she cut this alligator open to check and see if there were any hooves in there? Oh, no, the alligator ate the miniature horse three years ago. Judy oh. has been <laughs> Man. has been desperately wow. trying to avenge the death of her miniature horse ever since. And you should see the picture, Hank. She is just absolutely delighted. That's some Princess Bride stuff right there. Yeah, my name is Inigo Montoya. Prepare to die. Yeah, my name is Judy. I'm the mayor of this town, and you ate my miniature horse. Prepare to die. <laughs> <laughs> So does the story continue? The gator that ate my miniature horse had six fingers, and I can't help but notice that you too have six <laughs> fingers, sir. All right. Well, that. thank you for the very good news, John. I'm happy for Judy, and uh, I'm glad the miniature horse has been avenged, though I'm somewhat sad for the alligator involved. You, you got to do what you got to do as a 12-foot gator in Livingston, Texas. But we've got questions we need to get to, John. Important questions like this one from Emma, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I am a 20-year-old college student who has just had her first peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They are amazing. Who knew? Like literally everyone, Emma. Now that I have started <laughs> making myself PB&Js quite regularly... I'm, I'm like wondering what the best way to do it is. Do I peanut butter both sides or just one? Do I put peanut butter around the edges to hold the jelly in? PB and yay, Emma. I mean, there. I've only ever done it one way. I also love PB and J's. It's really about like getting that good, fluffy, soft white bread around the edges. That that really makes it for me, and and I'm having a craving for one right now. But like, there's only one way to do this, right? Is Emma overthinking things? Yeah, you put peanut butter on one piece of bread and jelly on the other piece of bread. You do have to get the percentages yeah. right. You got to have the correct ratio. Mm -hmm. But once you do that, Emma, you're good. The only thing I'd say is that there has been a recent innovation in the field yeah. of peanut butter and jellies mm -hmm. that I highly recommend mm -hmm. called an uncrustable. I have not tried this. I've had them suggested to me a number of times by people who are very passionate Uncrustables fans. Like, the way I feel about Uncrustables is the way that I hope someone anywhere feels about me someday. <laughs> like, like they want to they wanna heat you up, take you out of the freezer, put you <laughs> just, like, completely consume you as if you were a miniature horse oh, and they like a 12-foot gator? <laughs> Someday I want to feel the way a 12-foot gator feels about Judy's miniature horse. Is it possible that the miniature horse just ran away and the gator has been unjustly blamed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like, also I feel like probably Judy knows what she's talking about. I know lots of people are opposed to Uncrustables for various reasons, but I'll tell you, when I go to the Indy 500 every year, I pack a 12-pack of frozen Uncrustables, and by lap 80, they are nice and warm, and I eat all oh, of you just them. Let them. you just let them thaw out. Yeah. Yeah, I use them to help cool my beers. And then around lap 80, they're no longer ice. Now they're food. Okay. I'm looking at Uncrustables now, I'm, and I want to see how they're manufactured. <laughs> oh, I assume that they're made by cutting off all of the crusts. There's definitely then, a stamp. Hmm. I think there's a stamp that comes down and stamps it out. Yeah. Sneak yeah. peek the Uncrustables. That looks like a factory. What happens to all the crusts? Do you think somewhere else in the world, Hank, there's like a community that loves only crusts? And so no. Smuckers sells Uncrustables here in the United States, <laughs> but then somewhere else they sell Crustables. <laughs> no, no, John. I think I think that it's the United States of America, and so they just they just put it in a bin and and give it to the chickens. <laughs> like 
That's true. That's almost That's definitely true. the case. I would love to go see an Uncrustables factory, and I do want to know what happens to the crust when they when they industrially stamp these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches out of giant sheets of bread. All I know is that they're flipping delicious. John, did you know that the J.M. Smucker Company is manufacturing a, a new plant in Longmont, Colorado that will make Uncrustables? It's scheduled to be completed in 2019. It's great to know that Smuckers is planning for the Uncrustable long run. All right, Hank, this next question comes from Mary, who writes, Dear John and Hank, this year my high school is offering free vaccines for flu season. Now, there are obviously a bunch of pros in this situation. Vaccines are important for keeping you healthy. It's convenient because it's happening at my school. It's free. But there is one con. I hate shots. Mm. I know it's just a little prick, but it's like I can feel all the antigens flowing into my bloodstream. And then you feel all numb afterwards. And the nurses look at you like you're a freaking five-year-old. And just about everything about vaccines makes my skin crawl. Do you have any tips or tricks to help me cope with shots or science that can reassure me? It may not be Christmas, but I'm still Mary. Mm, Mary. Uh, I, I think one is is how much better it's gotten. And so I, I try to remind myself that back in the day, like needles were bigger and thicker and like rougher, like at the microscopic level. And so shots used to hurt much worse than they do now. And I just think about all the people who had to get shots that were worse than the shots I had to get. That's helpful. I also think it's helpful to remind yourself how much it sucks getting the flu. And you're not like guaranteeing mm. yourself to not experience that misery, but you are decreasing your chances of experiencing that misery. And maybe even more importantly, you're decreasing the chances that other people who are extremely vulnerable to death from the flu are going to experience that death. It's true. And that really helps me out when it comes to getting my flu shot because I also don't love needles, I don't love shots, but I do love slightly increasing the chances that people in my community will survive when otherwise they might have died. Another thing I'd say is like repetition, like doing the thing, eventually it becomes less unpleasant. Oftentimes, this has happened for me like eight years ago, I started taking a medication where I had to get my blood taken pretty frequently. And when, when I started doing that, it was, I really hated it and I dreaded it every time. And now I show up and I'm like, sup, Steve. And he's like, right arm or left. And then it's like washing the dishes. Like it's not what I want to do on any given day, but it's not like something that I super dread. Uh, John, I have another question for you. Sure. It comes from Paige who asks, dear Hank and John, my roommate and I disagree on a fundamentally important question that could change our futures forever, is you 2 a boy band? She says yes, they are a group of men who started the band as boys, but I completely disagree. It's you 2 They aren't like NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys. They're you 2 I'm made out of trees, Paige. Wait, wait. I feel like Paige buried the lead. <laughs> wait, are you a tree? Oh, wait, it's because Paige you a, house? a page of paper. I thought yeah. that, yeah. all right, it's not literal. <laughs> Yeah, not that. Well, it's funny that you should ask this question, Paige, because Robert Smith, the lead singer of The Cure, formed (laughs) The Cure when he was 17 years old. Oh. And several other members of The Cure, I believe, were also technically children when they began curing Mm -hmm. way back in the mid-1970s. I would argue that The Cure are not a boy band, even though they were once composed of all boys. Yeah, I feel like I feel like there's this pretty specific definition of boy band, and this it isn't a band made of boys. It is a band that was manufactured by adults by putting boys into, like, by recruiting boys to be in a band. Correct. 
Like the monkeys were a boy band because they were manufactured. The Beatles were not a boy band because they met and formed a band together. Yeah, to me, it's a central fact of the boy band story that the boy band was formed by some usually exploitative adult (laughs) trying to extract value from these young people's talent. And and also intrinsic to the boy band story is the eventual rejection of that that overlord and then being able to go off and and be creative uh from out under the shadow of the of the created uh, institution and then later coming back into the created institution and be like we are the Backstreet Boys and we will tour together because we are people right. and we can do that and we love our fans and we love making things and I, now I want to go see a Back Boys, Back Boys band concert uh, sounds like a great Backstreet Boys cover band <laughs> yeah it's funny how even though many different boy bands have lived that boy band narrative I am not yet tired of it Like, I can't help it. I love to see America build a celebrity up, tear that celebrity down, and then build them back up again. All right, Hank, we got another question. This one comes from Gene, who writes, Dear John and Hank, how am I supposed to behave when people are singing happy birthday to me? I mean, I have had 38 birthdays, and I still can't tell you. I guess you just sit there, like, with a dumb smile on your face, and you're like... Thanks, everyone, for paying attention to me. Could you sing this song slightly faster? (laughs) Well, I have two observations about this, Hank. First, almost every time in life when you feel like people are looking at you and paying attention to you and gauging your every facial expression, you're wrong. And you just need Hmm. to calm down and remind yourself that it's okay and everyone is obsessed with themselves and not thinking about you. But when people are singing happy birthday to you, you can't reassure yourself that way. Like, they are looking at you and you do have to, like, try to put on a face that is appropriate for the situation that you find yourself in. And whenever I have that problem, the Mm. problem that people are actually looking at me, I, I turn to one mentor. And do you know who that is, Hank? No. It's the Queen of England. The Queen of England always has people looking at her. Mm -hmm. And so she is incredibly good at making a face that says, I acknowledge you. Thank you for acknowledging me. And let the festivities continue. So, like, your eyebrows are a little up, but not very up, Mm -hmm. and your eyes are fairly open, and your smile is pleasant, but not large, and you're just like, hey, everyone's doing this. This is nice, and and thank you, and I agree that we all should be celebrating me in this moment. I am right there with you. Good job, me. I lived a year again. That's right. That's exactly right. Just Google the Queen of England and paint that face onto your face and you'll be good. (laughs) That sounds like a makeup challenge. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday. I've painted the Queen of England's face onto my face. That's the only way I can feel comfortable while you guys are singing to me. You show up to your birthday party and people are like, you you do look a year older. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen you. (laughs) This next question is a science question, so it's just for me. Dear Hank and John, why is it that when there's a black frame in a movie or TV show or whatever, for example, the opening scene of Fellowship of the Ring, my computer screen looks different than when it's just turned off? Isn't black just the absence of light? Why not have those pixels not emit light? 
Nothing rhymes with Kirsten. <laughs> Do you know the answer to the question, John? Uh, I don't. No. It's because uh, the pixels don't emit light. The pixels change the color of the light as it passes through. So in a laptop screen or, a, you know, any, any almost any, um, any, any modern display, it's just a, a uniform sheet of LEDs or some other light-emitting thing behind this film, and it can only be on or off. Some of them can have intensities of brightness in different areas, and that like that allows for deeper blacks. But usually, it's just we are. This is just a, a giant like lamp that I'm looking at that is shining at me, and then the thing that lays on top of it uh, changes the color of the light as it passes through. Mm. And so, black is uh, is the the liquid crystal display trying to block as much of the light as it can, but that light is still there behind it. Oh, interesting. It's kind of a metaphor. That light is always there, John, but sometimes it is trying to be blocked by the intro screen of the Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, exactly. I don't even have to explain it. It's uh, perfectly self-explanatory. This next question comes from Aliana, who writes, Dear John and Hank, why do people hate raisins? I've always enjoyed raisins, but it seems that very few people enjoy them as much as I do. What don't people like about them? Do you guys like raisins or hate them? You know what I think about raisins, John? I think there's a lot about a lot of dried fruit in general is that like once yeah. upon a time it was hard to find something tasty and sweet. And now yeah. it's everywhere. I could just go get a Twizzler. I could have a fudge round right now. I could just drink pure sugar water for 50 cents a can. And so back in the day a raisin was like, "Oh my god, there's so much sweetness in one place." And now we're like, "Look at this trash ball." That basically is trying to be a Twizzler, but failing. Okay, I have two problems with everything that you just said. First off, okay. I, I don't understand why you're celebrating Twizzlers, which are literally the worst candy. <laughs> Change it to Jelly Belly or yes. M&M or whatever you like. No, anything is acceptable except for Twizzlers, which aren't sweet. They taste <laughs> like, like Twizzlers. No, Twizzlers taste like you told someone without taste buds to make something that tastes like strawberry sweetness. I like Twizzlers, and we're and and we're just gonna have to agree to disagree. Okay, well you're objectively wrong, but t- the other thing is that you're objectively wrong about raisins. What do you mean? I'm not saying they're actually trash balls. I'm just saying that people like nowadays it's just too easy to get sweet stuff, and so we're like an oatmeal raisin cookie. I could have a chocolate chip cookie. So my son recently had to do a project for school where he's learning about facts and opinions. Really, everyone should take this course. (laughs) The difference between facts and opinions and how you know that facts are facts and opinions are opinions. And as part of that, he had to write out a fact about raisins and an opinion about raisins. Mm -hmm. And his fact was raisins are dried grapes. And his opinion was raisins are terrible. <laughs> did you like, ask him like why what is it yeah. is it because because they're trash balls and you could just have a chocolate chip right now yeah i was like what's wrong with raisins and he was like they're disgusting and i was like what's disgusting about them and he was like they just taste like dried grapes and i was like well i mean <laughs> i mean you're not wrong yes that's correct good good so his argument is that the grape is a good fruit and mm-hmm. since we live in a world of abundance where we don't have to dry our fruit to make it last longer, that we should just eat grapes. But I quite like raisins. And I, by the way, Aliana, don't let anybody tell you what kind of foods to like, except when it comes to Twizzlers. 
<laughs> we got a question, John. It's from Ilsa who asks, Dear Hank and John, my friend has a problem that is sort of my fault and I need some dubious advice. It started when she told me that there was a boy in her orchestra who she randomly had the number for and she wasn't sure why. So she's got mm. a phone number, doesn't know why she has a phone number, but he plays cello and is apparently pretty cute. And she asked me what to do. <laughs> I have a cute cello player's phone number and I need to know what to do. So Ilsa said that she should text, thank you for signing up for the daily cello pun service or something like that, and then text him cello puns. She started this service which is just for one person, and all was great, but she has run out of puns. Google is not helping, and we need you to, to save this fake subscription and give us more puns, Ilsa. John, um, can I go ahead and question Ilsa's strategies? Yeah, Hank, I guess I just don't understand contemporary courtship because mm -hmm. I thought that when you had a kind of interest in someone, you would talk to them maybe via text messages, but but talk to them as yourself, not as a uh, cello pun service. <laughs> as an imaginary, as an imaginary uh, service that uh, he didn't sign up for, but apparently hasn't unsubscribed from. So that's good. <laughs> right, yeah. No, I mean, the good news is he likes it. I, I think it's time to end the cello pun service and send out a message that says like, hi, this is the end of the cello pun service, but the beginning of talking to me, an actual human being who you met once and gave probably gave your number to and I'm wondering if perhaps you would be interested in a if you will a string duet <laughs> yeah, well at least you got a kind of pun in there uh, Ilsa the other good news is that I've tweeted uh, in the meantime while John was doing that uh, that I needed some cello puns for love and I've gotten 106 replies uh, do you want to hear some of them John D desperately. You could uh, have your friend text to the cute cello player, Netflix and cello. Or oh, um, when life gets you lemonades, you can make lemon cello. Oh, or God. I don't care that our families are against our union. Let's cellope together. <laughs> Gee, all right, that's it. I'm calling it. It's the end of the cello puns. <laughs> Ilsa, this has to stop b both for me and for this poor. There's always cellist. room for cello. Oh God! Oh God! It's it won't stop. It it won't end. We have a, the next question. The next question comes from <laughs> I I don't know who. I just have to. I can't. I why do I hate puns so much? Something about g strings. Nope. Nothing about g strings. This next question comes from I. Ah, well, I can't find one. <laughs> We have so many questions. I know. That's why I'm, I'm panicked. I'm in a blind panic. I can't even look. Uh. Okay, I found one. This next question comes from Emily, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently started a new job at a marketing firm where I primarily write their blog. This is great because I graduated college with a bachelor's in writing, but it isn't great because I don't have any experience in marketing, which is the topic of all these blogs I have to write. As people who often give advice on topics you know nothing about, what tips do you have for someone who has to give advice on a topic they know nothing about? Pumpkins and Penguins, <laughs> Emily. I feel like that was a burn, no, but it I, wasn't I like really. It. I like it. <laughs> Emily, take a lesson from Hank Green and just sound confident whenever you talk. That's right. That's right. No one really knows what marketing is, Emily. That's a great point. That's a great point. And and like really what marketing is, is uh, trying to get people to pay attention to you. So anytime you are blogging, you are doing marketing. You're trying to get people to 
you're marketing your marketing is what you're doing. What I would do in this situation is I would ask some of the people you work with if you can interview them about their areas of expertise, because then it's a chance to get a blog post oh. and you learn something about marketing along the way. That's that's wonderful, John. High fives. That's like that's such a good idea. That's like so antithetical to the to the spirit of the question where we're giving good advice on something we know nothing about. That shouldn't have been possible. I mean, I would submit that I know way more about marketing novels than about writing them, but your point is well taken. <laughs> they do get you involved in the marketing process, John. I have been surprised by how many times my about the people I work with uh, whose jobs are like head of publicity or marketing have been like, what should we do? Yeah, well, they want to work with you in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah. Uh, I keep forgetting that we are about to go on tour for mm -hmm. your first novel. This mm -hmm. is crazy. How did this happen? I realize that you spent years and years writing the book and that's how it happened. But I am so excited to go on tour for Not My Thing. <laughs> I, maybe that's why I'm feeling more stressed about it because like it's my thing and I feel very responsible for the quality of the stage show which I have spent the last week designing and I think is very good but also is sort of complicated because I've been wanting to make it quite good and that makes me more stressed because it's like I, if it's not good I worked pretty hard on a thing that nobody likes which reminds me that this podcast is brought to you by the Absolutely Remarkable Thing book tour which tickets are available right now and are probably still available for all uh, uh, the, the New York show, which is happening tomorrow when this podcast comes out, and uh, and also a lot of other places that we'll be going to. And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by the An Absolutely Remarkable Thing tote bag and sticker, literally available right now at dftba.com. <laughs> it's really good. I designed them both myself, so I guess I shouldn't have said it's really good in that very confident way, but here I am. I'm me. Yeah, no, just keep being yourself, Hank. I love I love your confidence. I also love that when you are under immense stress and there is a lot going on in your life, your reaction is to just do more. So you're like, I'm going to make a bunch of videos. I'm going to design some merch for my book. I'm going to plan a complicated like stage show with 17 costume changes and lots of audio and visual cues that I'm sure won't be problematic at all. And I'm going to, it's great. Like my response to being under a lot of stress is the like turtle response where I'm like, I bet if I hide under my desk, no one will find me. <laughs> I did have that that impulse the other day for the first time where I was like, my neighbor is working on his siding, like he's nailing up siding right now. And yeah. I'm like, I should just go over and help him uh, help him put up his siding because like I could do that. I know I know how to use a hammer. Uh, and then no one would be able to find me. They'd be like, where's Hank? They wouldn't ever think <laughs> that I was on on my neighbor's roof. Like tapping down shingles. Yeah, no, I mean, I literally did a version of that after I came home from the Turtles All the Way Down tour. I was like, that was weird and really intense. And I think that I'm going to demolish this small building in the backyard of my house. And I'm going to use the bricks from it to make a path. <laughs> and I did that. That sounds like my area of expertise. Yeah, I worked like 60 hours a week on that path for like a month. And then at the end of it, I remember I put the last brick down and I looked up and I was like, that was an excellent use of my time. Like a genuinely excellent 
use of my one brief flicker of consciousness. And all the time Mm. I walk on that path now, it takes exactly one minute to walk the path. (laughs) And I walk on that (laughs) path now and I think like, oh, what a great month that was. So anyway, when you get back from tour, Hank, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of equivalents to that that you can turn to if you want to. But what you're probably going to do is like write another book, make 600 Hank channel videos and design some merch. Yeah, that's does seem more unlikely. This next question comes from Delfina, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I recently graduated from college and I just accepted an internship at a great company for the next six months. I really like working here, but I really want to know how do I make friends with the people I work with? They're all in their mid to late 20s and the place is super creative and relaxed. Every day I do my very best to get all the work I'm given done and to try to learn all the software that I need to work with in my free time. But what I really want to know is how do I become part of their conversations and their jokes? Whenever I'm with my boss, it seems like the only thing we could talk about is the weather. What's your advice for an intern trying to make a lasting impression? Sincerely, the Oracle of Delphina. I think this is hard. I don't have a good answer. Um, I mean, I guess you you need to like know how social interaction happens at your office, and and like in any situation where you're coming into an existing social space, like there won't be an immediate place for you, and it's been created without you, and so there's institutional knowledge, like inside jokes, and like just culture and values that you're not aware of. And so this is necessarily hard. And I think coming into it thinking, how am I going to make a lasting impression is probably not the right way to like secure if you like this job, like that might not be the right mindset to be in. Like, how do I make everyone remember me is like, there are lots of ways to make them remember you that will not make people want to work with you. So like definitely be focused on like making life easier for your coworkers, try to figure out like what, what their challenges are and, and commiserate with them on those challenges and also help them out with those challenges. Uh, But also where are the places and times when social like socializing happens? Um, You know, are there meetings that are fairly small that are also pretty relaxed and people are, you know, not just talking about work, but also sort of building company culture. And can you be in those meetings? Can you like make a reason for yourself to be in a meeting like that? Um, Or, uh, and also just accepting that, like, it's going to take a while for you to become a part of and to understand the culture and values of the place where you work. And that is just a part of being new at a place. And, and six months is a pretty, actually a pretty short time to try to get all that done in. So don't, you know, don't, don't put too much pressure on yourself. If it doesn't feel like at the end of the six months, like you've become like an intrinsic part of the company because it does take a while. Yeah. I would focus on being helpful. I think that's by far the biggest thing you can do in an internship is crush the internship part of the internship Mm -hmm. and the interpersonal stuff should accompany that rather than the interpersonal stuff leading it. Right. And I think there might be sometimes a little bit too much in our minds. We think like, oh, I'm going to like, I'm going to keep my job because everyone likes me, but that's not really how it works, especially sort of in modern day business. Like you keep your job because you're doing a good job of it. Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, 
there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. All right, Hank, I want to ask you this question from Abby, who writes, Dear John and Hank, a couple months ago, I got a pet frog, and I named him Hank. Aw, Hank. That is very sweet. Now Hank is dead. <laughs> okay. Was Hank uh, was Hank eaten by an alligator? Can we avenge him? Is there, is there, is there a 12-foot alligator I can shoot? <laughs> no, Hank died due to organ failure. Oh. And I was wondering if I should get another frog and name him John, or if John would rather share his name with another animal. Your favorite NCIS character, Abby. That name-specific sign-off is sort of lost on me as yeah. I've never seen the program. Yeah, that's. Uh, it, it may very well be my favorite NCIS character. I cannot really come up like I can't conjure a visual image of any of them. There's a man with right a square now, jaw and a woman who is too old to have pigtails. It's, it's, this, it's the latter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Abby, here's the deal. I would love it if you named a pet after me. It would be one of the great joys of my life to know that somewhere there is somebody who thinks enough of my work to name their pet after me. Um, I don't want a frog because I'm concerned that it will die after just two months of organ failure. Yeah. What I want is pretty simple and pretty straightforward, Abby. I want you to get a miniature horse and I want you to name it John. Um, that sounds like a big ask. Nope. I gotta be honest. Abby, I'm gonna need you to acquire some pasture land. But not too, but not too much. You also can't have one miniature horse, John. They need friends. Yeah, Hank. Hank, the other miniature horse. Oh, okay. I'm in now. I like it. I'm on board. This is cute. John and Hank, the miniature horses in wherever you live, Abby. And if you live in a city, don't worry. Just buy the house next to you, tear it down, and put in some pasture land. Yeah, they're small horses. It's fine. If you live near like a bayou or some swampland, do be concerned about that, though. This is a new concern of mine, but it is a legitimate concern that miniature horses are gator food. Oh, my God. Have you seen how small miniature horses are? They can be really small. Oh, my God. These are the cutest things I have ever seen in my whole life. Oh, God. Oh, I might need to... Oh, oh, they're adorable. Oh, my God. And now it all makes sense. Now you understand how an alligator could totally eat that, especially because they don't look like they would be particularly good at anything. Oh, and if somebody ate one of my miniature horses, I would be so angry. My anger would burn with the fire of a thousand suns. Your anger would burn with at least one shotgun, I bet. Oh, I, I absolutely... I would find it... I'm looking at a picture of a baby riding a miniature horse and the miniature horse is nose snuggling with a Clydesdale and I might die. (laughs) Man. And if somebody ate that miniature horse, if an alligator ate that miniature horse, you can, you better believe that I would 
hire someone to kill that alligator. And if a baby, Hank, that was the best joke I have ever told, and you didn't laugh. I don't. Did you? You must not have heard me. I was finding the picture. I was looking for the picture. I found it. And if an alligator ate that Clydesdale, I would definitely just let the alligator take over the world. Just yeah. it's, it's in charge now. <laughs> Congratulations, you are president. I vote for you. <laughs> oh man, I'd love to do uh, one of the one of the bad things about being a human, Hank, is that you can't run uh, a bunch of really high quality simulations about what would happen if you did X or Y, and so you make decisions without having all of the information that you need to make the decision. Yep. But I would love to run a simulation where in the year 2020, we all just elect an alligator to be president and we see what happens. Yes. I would also 100% like to see the results of that simulation. I would not like to see the results of that in a way that I could not escape from it. Right, exactly. I don't want to bet the farm on an alligator president, but I'm definitely interested in an alligator president. Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I do want to share one other email uh, from a listener named Jess. So you might remember in a recent episode, we advised someone who was attending a wedding and was nervous about a bouquet throw to just get in with everyone else, but intentionally not catch the bouquet. Mm -hmm. For those who are unaware, there's this weird tradition in at least American weddings where the bride throws her bouquet of flowers, and whoever catches that bouquet is supposed to be the next person to get married. Anyway, Jess wrote in to say, Dear John and Hank, in the last episode of the pod, Hank theorizes what would happen if no one caught a bouquet at a wedding. That exact scenario has happened to me. I was a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding, and as a single lady, I lined up for the bouquet toss. The bride gave a good backwards toss, and no one went for it. No one even <laughs> jumped up and down in excitement. We all just stood there awkwardly as the flowers flew through the air, and then the bouquet landed on the floor for what felt like 30 seconds until the bride said, Really? <laughs> and then at last, someone, not me, begrudgingly shuffled forward a few steps and picked it up. The bright side is that this is a humorous story that the married couple can tell for years. So no worries, Emily. Don't catch that bouquet unless you darn well want to. Don't stress, Jess. And Hank, we can't share it because it has people's face in it. But it came with a picture. <laughs> and the really picture. Good. The picture is one of those magical things I've ever seen because every first off the bouquet is almost on the ground and all of the, it's like still in the air but it's like a foot off the ground and everyone's just sort of standing there with their arms at their sides <laughs> staring at the bouquet as it falls they all got their eyes right on it and they're like I guess we're all just gonna stand here because I don't want a bunch of flowers to decide my future and a couple of people have looks of open disdain like the young woman in the green dress. She yeah. look, it looks like it kind of might get close to her and she's literally recoiling. <laughs> like she's <laughs> she's like it's going to bounce toward me. What is it? Do I have to catch it? What if it just touches me? And then the woman in the black skirt, she's looking like she's holding one arm up to her heart and she's looking at it like, "Oh god, no. Oh god." Oh God. Well, I think she's like, nobody's going for yeah. it. She has stood well to the side because yeah. she's like, I'm not going to be anywhere near that. But all the people who are a little bit closer, just like half smile. Yeah. yeah. Half smile. Yeah. Oh man. Nobody wants that bouquet. <laughs> nobody wants that bouquet. All right, John, you got any AFC Wimbledon news for me? Oh God. It's terrible. 
So Hank, AFC Wimbledon have entirely new players, but somehow we don't have entirely new results. Yesterday, mm. as we're recording this, uh, Wimbledon played the Swansea under-21 team in the Football League trophy, which because under-21 teams from uh, the Premier League are now allowed to play in it has become an absolute joke. We lost 1-0, but I would argue this is good news because I don't want to move out of the group in this. I want to be able to focus on competitions that matter. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, in our most recent league game, we lost uh, 3-2 to Scunthorpe. It's just been a real struggle, and I'm worried. I am, like, officially worried. I, we really need to get through this season still in the third tier of English football because next season, uh, midway through the year, if everything happens on schedule, the new stadium will open, and that's going to be such a huge moment in the history of Wimbledon, and I really, really, really want us to be a third-tier team. I'm trying to do my part uh, by increasing the sponsorship that uh, we have by making an absolutely remarkable thing, the training kit sponsor for AFC Wimbledon, <laughs> but job, of course, John. sponsors can only do so much, so... Uh, Wimbledon are struggling along. Hopefully form will improve soon. Okay. I mean, anytime you guys score, I feel good. Like it was that, it was that, like that goal drought that made me the most worried. When yeah. That, that like the month of November when they had to cancel the goal of the month celebration due to having had no goals. Yeah. So I didn't like that. Uh, be- and I feel like if you're, if you're losing two, three, basically yeah. that's a, like in most situations where you score two goals in a soccer game, you win. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that is probably correct. Or at least tie. Yeah. So I so I just feel like th- like situations like that you know, it's just it's just went down to bad luck. And and so if we have had some bad luck in the beginning of the season and yeah. hopefully things will turn around. Hank, I am anxiously awaiting the news from Mars because I've been I, I I'm worried that the the death knell the official death knell is going to come any day now. Well, we're not going to talk about opportunity today because there is the, there isn't any new news. I've, I've okay. set us all up for the the sort of path that we must take, and and NASA's sort right. of going through the the motions, waiting to you know hear back. But uh, there, the the news that I'm I'm reporting today is a survey. So a survey was carried out in August on uh, adults in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and the survey was supposed to be representative of uh, people who will be adults in the UK in 2026. And it found that of the people who will be of age to go to Mars in 2026, not that that's going to happen, but fingers crossed, 50% of men and 30% of women would be happy to go on a return trip to Mars. I feel like this is a very high percentage and that people have not been correctly informed as to what this entails. <laughs> Totally. And totally. yeah. Also, they're currently many of them are currently like twelve. <laughs> That's true. It's true. A number of them are children. Uh, and as for a one-way trip, forty percent of men said that they would definitely or probably want to go on a one-way trip to Mars, and twenty percent of women. First of all, this just makes me less optimistic about men. Uh, but uh, but but very high percentages in both cases. I mean, like saying, yes, I want to go die on Mars. That's a lot of people saying yes. Yeah, I think that in addition to having to die on Mars, there's the other problem, which is that life on Mars for years or decades would likely be very difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 an interesting thing to me. Like people who like kind of want to sign up to do something very hard 
even though there are lots of very hard things you could do right here on Earth, but to feel like you're doing something really awful, but it's exceptional at the same time. And like that right. that thing is really interesting to me where people are like and it's entirely in, in your own mind, right? Like doing terrible, difficult, unpleasant manual labor on Mars is the same action as doing it on Earth. But no one wants to do it on Earth. But I think a lot of people would sort of feel like more okay about doing it on Mars because it has that that layer of like you know, like doing a thing that has never been done and also I like potentially setting up humans for this new adventure. Yeah. Even if you're not going to sort of enjoy the good parts of the adventure. Yeah. One of the things I like about humans is that we are explorers. We can't kind of can't help but try to find what's on the other side of things. Like we're, we're just incredibly curious. And I like that about us. I like that we're, we're willing to let our curiosity take us to risky dangerous places and in a way that's why we've become such a successful species i mean the reason humanity spread across the planet in the first place was because we were curious in a way that other species of the genus homo weren't yeah and uh and i do hope that it takes us to mars and i i am very i'm in awe of the people who will sign up for that because i'm not one because i i get pukey going in elevators yeah no i'm also out on that but i do hope i desperately hope that i live to see the day when human beings first set foot on mars and that i am there to celebrate it with you like that is something that i would fly to wherever you are to see you see it Oof, that makes me very nervous well i mean you know it, it we, we, we would also just be hanging out so you know, if everything, if everything, yeah, no, I just like the idea, like, like just watching Curiosity Land made me extremely nervous. Oh, what, that was so really exciting! Nervous. Oh God, that was such a fun day. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. All right. Well, Hank, congratulations on your book. The book is an absolutely remarkable thing. That's both its title and its description. Uh, oh. I'm so excited for everybody to read it. Thanks for potting with me, Hank. Thanks to everybody for listening. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music that you're listening to right now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be awesome. awesome.